is the give to Salam. Salam to the outside. He's down to the 50. He's got 2,000. He's on his way. 20, 15, 10, 5. Did he get in? Yes, touchdown. Touchdown, Rashad Salam. This place is coming apart. Rashad Salam, whole team going down. What a story. He goes over 2,000 by running 67 yards for a touchdown. I tell you, what a golden moment that is. Choked up, I tell you. What a golden moment. Certainly a golden moment back in 1994, but a sad week this week around Buff Nation as Rashawn Salam dead at the age of 42. A lot to talk about with the Alamo Bowl, Colorado's men's basketball victory over Xavier. But Tyler, it would not seem right to, to lead off this podcast not talking about Rashawn Salam and his legacy with the Buffaloes. Yeah, I mean, uh, it says a lot about what he meant to college football to see, not just people from the Boulder community, but even CSU football had a tweet about his passing. Um, national writers all over the place, former Heisman candidates, NFL teammates, that kind of stuff. At the end, he was just a really well-liked guy. Had People talk about his smile all the time, like one of the brightest smiles you'll ever see. And Hopefully that's how people choose to remember him because I mean, you never know what somebody's going through, I guess, internally. But, uh, man, it's just a tough one. Yeah. He lived in Superior until his passing and uh, just a couple miles from me. And, and I ran into him at Safeway a number of times at Costco and introduced myself. And then when we'd see each other, he'd ask about the buffs. So you definitely uh, still cared about the buffs. And and I tried to do a getting to know interview lined up with him, and he wanted no part of that. There, the interviews with him were few and far between. Yeah. Um, he did some around the time he got inducted into CU's Hall of Fame, but was not a guy that was really comfortable talking about himself. Um, it, like you said, it, it's it's sad that he was having these struggles, and, and no one seemed to know about it. Um, but yeah, definitely a, a kind-hearted person. You could tell just from communicating with him, and. His his legacy is, is huge on the Colorado football program. Not only the the Heisman, uh, the locker there in the, in the new facilities, but we did a, a couple years ago. We did a Mount Rushmore vote on the board, and uh, he was one of four guys on mm-hmm. that. This is a big part of the the history of Colorado football. Yeah, I mean, people talk about the nineteen ninety and nineteen eighty nine years a lot, but for some reason, it seems like that nineteen ninety four season doesn't get talked about as much. I mean, two thousand yards. In this day and age, you play 13 or 14 games at times, not as big of a deal necessarily. He did that in 11 games. That's, yeah. in, that's insane. I mean, I don't know the exact math, but you're averaging 180, 190 yards, something like that in there. That's unbelievable production, one of the greatest college running backs you'll ever see. Yeah, I mean, I only got to meet him one time. I was actually at one of the recruiting banquets that got him to come, and he took pictures with us, and I have a picture with my one of my buddies that he uh, posted on one of our group texts yesterday that I had actually forgotten was still around. So um, I'm probably going to ask him to get me another one printed because it's kind of an important memory. I mean, obviously, it's somebody that's really important to this program, and I hope they find a way to memor- to have some sort of memory for him during the bowl game intros. Yeah. Such a incredible talent uh, and a great story when you, you, you talk about him coming from an eight-man football team in San Diego uh, to winning the Heisman Trophy. Uh, kind of that rare combination of size, speed, strength, uh, kind of that upright running style. I don't, I don't even know who I would compare him to in terms of a running style. He kind of had a unique blend of talent. Yeah, definitely. Uh, no one else out there like him. Um, and hopefully, again, that's how people remember him. It would be tough to compare him to anybody at this point. Well, there's uh, 
Obviously a lot to talk about with the Buffaloes right now. Patrick Godosi and I shared our thoughts on the Pac-12 championship game out there at Levi Stadium after the game. Tyler, this is our first podcast from that since that game. Get the, uh, the fan correspondent take here. What was kind of your main <coughs> takeaways from that football game? Uh, you can't turn the ball over against a team like Washington. Pretty much as simple as that. Not really angry about it, though, honestly. I mean, Cepho is one of the hardest working guys on the team. He's just tough, you know, tough-minded. You know he's going to want to play in that situation. You have to give him credit for trying. And obviously, looking back on it, we probably should have just gone with Montez because Cepho was obviously not healthy enough to really get us where we needed to go. But you're not taking Cepho out of the game. So it's hard to really blame anybody um, for how it worked out. Him getting hurt, I mean, you knew right away that was going to be a problem for this team. And at the end of the day, Washington's got a lot of dudes. I mean, that's the bottom line. They got NFL guys at all three levels of their defense. They got NFL guy quarterback, NFL guy wide receiver, probably an NFL guy running back as well. There's really a lot of talent on that football team, and sometimes that's what wins. I mean, it's as simple as that. They didn't turn the ball over. Um, something that obviously we needed to go in our favor. You can't turn the ball over to a minus three turnover differential against a team like Washington and win. That's not going to happen. Yeah, it was always obviously debated a lot on the message board about Sefo Lufau playing in that second half. Uh, kind of a, a prime example of hindsight speed, uh, 2020. Right. Mm-hmm. When Sefo Lufau was starting the second half, you had to feel better about Colorado's chances than you would have had Steve Montez run out there. So I think it's easy to criticize that, again, in hindsight. Certainly after the second pick, you probably should have taken him out. But by that point, the game's kind of out of reach anyways. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. It was. It got out of control pretty quick in that third quarter. And you know, it's easy to tell Mike McIntyre that he should have taken Cephal out. But you put yourself in his shoes and try to take Cephal out of that football game. I don't think anybody really had the guts to do it, even if it was what needed to be done. Kind of a reality check for the front seven on defense, the way Washington kind of imposed their will. We haven't seen that often this season, obviously. Yeah, um, uh, to some degree. Uh, you knew that was going to have to happen at some point, though. I mean, we're undersized there. Washington's got a lot of big bodies. They use that power running game really well. Honestly, though, um, I thought the defense played really well. Uh, uh, you know, you give up a pick six. They gave up two field goals off um, two more interceptions, held their ground there. They did run the ball definitely pretty effectively against us, but if if the turnover margin had been simple, it would have been a much closer game. I mean, they got what they wanted. They converted a lot of third and mediums, but, uh, I mean, you, you kind of had to see that coming in. They were going to be able to move the ball. It was just a matter of can we not let them score enough points. And the secondary made Jake Browning and a first-team all-conference guy look like a scrub out there. Secondary, our secondary is insane. Like, at this point, <laughs> I don't know what else you want to say. They're not getting all that money accolades um, nationally right now. The dude was 9 for 23. I mean, you could talk. we lost 41-10, yes, but the secondary had literally nothing to do with that. The only time, I, the one big play was a horribly thrown ball, a terrible decision, and Cheeto misjudged the fact that he thought it was going over his head, and he went for the pick, and he got a one-handed catch for a touchdown on a fluke play. I mean, that's really the only positive thing they did moving the ball in the, in the air the whole entire game. Yeah. So after that game... I kind of resigned myself to the fact that Colorado was not going to the Rose Bowl. I actually booked my travel out to the Alamo Bowl that Saturday morning before they announced it because I figured the, the ticket prices were going to jump up immediately after that I got it got announced. Got definitely one of the smarter decisions I've made in a long time. But there were still Colorado fans out there holding out hope because of yeah. the fact that they were obviously in the championship game. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a major problem with the committee bumping USC 
up ahead of Colorado, and I get I get every argument on the other side of it. I get that. But on the biggest stage, you put up 163 yards of offense, you're just not putting confidence in the committee that you're going to be able to. And Penn State's ranked fifth right below Washington, the team that blew you out in, in that fashion. If Colorado plays Washington on a neutral field 10 times, I don't think they get blown out more than a couple times out of those 10. Yeah. But still, that's what happened that given mm-hmm. day. Yeah, I mean, you have to look at the results on the field and – Honestly, in both cases, USC beat us. Yes, whatever. You can say they're at home and it was a close game and all that without Cepho. True, but they also gave us four turnovers and we didn't take advantage of it. Um, there's arguments both sides. I think they're both valid arguments. I mean, they ended up ninth and we ended up tenth. It's not like they the committee was like, USC is clearly a better football team. But how the season played out at the end of the year, it's hard to argue with USC getting into that game. I mean, I think they're playing better right now. I would say they're probably a better football team right now. Um, you could say we deserved it more, and I'll buy that too, but that's not always how it works out. Uh, we had a chance to play our way in, and we didn't do it, so you leave it in the hands of the committee, and this is where we are. What makes it maybe a bit of a tough pill to swallow is the thought that since USC's 9, Colorado's 10, it's obviously really, really close. Had Colorado played at least more competitive? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're they're only down 7 half at halftime. If they have a, a similar second half, I think they probably – Sneak their way in. Yeah, I mean, I think if it's a 10 or 14-point game, they'd probably get in. But it wasn't. It was a 31-point game. And, yeah, some things don't go your way, but that's the third time we've used that excuse this year with the quarterback injuries. And at some point, you just have to play the game and win, you know? Like, we're a good football team, and we're playing a good football team in the Alamo Bowl. I think if you realistically look at what this team is, it's a team that's probably better. The the better matchup is with Oklahoma State. I think we're probably somewhere between the 10th and 15th best team in the country. So in the end, it works out okay. I mean, it's I'm not going to apologize for play, for finishing the year 10th. It's still a hell of a season. Well, that kind of transi- transition us here. I wanted to cover a Rose Bowl. I'm sure you wanted to go yeah. watch a Rose Bowl. But it's over. Let's, let's move on. And then hopefully the players do as well. Obviously, they were disappointed on Sunday. This is going to be a fun situation going out to San Antonio, the Alamo Bowl. We'll dive deeper into this matchup the closer we get to the game. But... Just kind of initial thoughts. I mean, you look at Oklahoma State, top 10 passing offense in the country, top 20 scoring offense, a little bit of a bend but don't break defense at times. They're 108th in the country in total defense, obviously horrible in that category, but they're, they rank 43 spots higher in scoring D. So this is a pretty explosive offensive team, but a team you can score points on. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I think they're probably not quite as explosive as they appear, and Big 12 defenses have a lot of issues. Um, they are a good team, especially offensively, as you mentioned. Mason Rudolph is a guy that can hurt you. But, again, if Washington can't move the ball on our off- uh, on our secondary, Oklahoma State's not either. The bottom line is we're going to have to stop the run. And they have, again, a power run game. So we're going to have to play better than we did than, we, uh, than against Washington, most likely to shut that down. Um, defensively, yeah, actually we're, I was impressed for how they played in stretches of the Oklahoma game. They hit hard, so they're going to come at you phys- with physicality, uh, but they give up a ton of yards. This offense has proven that they sputter against really good defenses and play really well against defenses that aren't in that category. Oklahoma State's defense is not in that category. We should be able to move the ball, and honestly, I really like the matchup for us. I think we're going to be um, in good shape if we come out healthy and play well. Mike Gundy? The best mullet in college football? There's no such thing as a good mullet. <laughs> Is it the only mullet in college football? Probably not. There's probably some southern 
one double A school guy with a mullet. Out I there. think I think the story is that I believe that Mike Gundy's family was giving him a hard time for it. So just to kind of egg them on a little bit, he just kept growing it out. I would, he has a wife, right? Like just cut that thing off in the middle of the night, <laughs> get it taken care of. No, I mean, honestly, I'm interested to see how what the atmosphere is like at the game because I know that I talked to somebody yesterday within Buffalo Sports Properties told me that CU has already sold out their first allotment of tickets. Weirdly, that's only 6,000. Seems like a small number for a first allotment. I mean, if you get 6,000 from each team, obviously, the stadium is going to be pretty empty. But it sounds like we're going to get more than that. Uh, the initial reaction, it seemed like a lot of people weren't going to go, but I was asking around on Twitter today. Seems like a ton of people are going now. Um, so hopefully both, I mean, Oklahoma State will definitely travel to this game. It's super easy for them. They'll, they'll have more people than us. I think that's probably fair to say. Uh, I hope it gets to like 35, 40,000. I think that'd be pretty awesome if we were able to pull that off. Not maybe the most convenient city to fly into just because it's yeah. not a, a thriving big major city. <laughs> but once you get there, this sets up for a really good bowl atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Being on the river walk, your walking distance to the Alamo Dome. Bar scene right there as well. All those restaurants, bars along the river walk, mm-hmm. you're going to run into Colorado fans, Oklahoma State fans. It just I've covered a lot of U.S. Army All-American Bowls that take place around the same time, and you just see the fan bases having the greatest time out there. I understand San Antonio is maybe not a city that you'd want to live in, There's, but in, from a tourist standpoint, once you get to the Riverwalk, it, it sets up great for a bowl game. Yeah, it's going to be a smaller atmosphere, uh, which is great. I think you'll kind of get that same vibe that we did in Albuquerque in that everything is about this matchup in the city on this on that day. And Albuquerque, obviously not a great town either, but it was a blast because there was 10,000 CU fans there. Fan base from all, all the other teams that were playing there as well, and it was one of the best three or four days of my life when we had a blast. I feel like San Antonio is going to be a ton of fun. I'm really excited. I've never been there before. I always like to see new places around the country. So for me, um, yeah, obviously you want to play in the rows, but the Alamo is a pretty damn good backup option. You're going to enjoy it, and they're going to have the holiday lights up still along the Riverwalk. It's, it's pretty pretty beautiful. I mean, the Riverwalk itself is kind of a glorified canal. It's like not this major natural you know, thing to see, but just the atmosphere that, that takes place along the Riverwalk is awesome at night. The Alamo is a little disappointing. I mean, you kind of want to – it's right by the Riverwalk. It's not that far out of the way to go see but don't expect to see some major, like, it's like you, you think of the Alamo before you see it. And I, I don't know, I had envisioned like this big building, but it's really kind of small. And it's <laughs> kind of weird. I thought it would be like out in the middle of nowhere, but it's like part of the kind of the downtown area there. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't realize it was that close to the city. I don't know if that would be a part of our... Uh, Just wander off at night and part look of our, for five minutes. It's not a Yeah, I mean, I guess if you could walk there, maybe we will. You can, yeah. Okay, then maybe we will do it. But yeah, it's definitely not high on my priority list at the moment. <laughs> Well, how big, I guess I should say, how important is this game in terms of how we'll remember the 2016 season in five years from now? If they, you don't think it, you're shaking your head? Probably not as big of a deal. Um, I mean, to win would obviously be huge, and it'll kind of cap off the huge year. But honestly, I don't feel like a loss is going to take away from what this team was able to accomplish, especially in Pac-12 play. So I think it's kind of like the icing on the cake type situation. At the end of the day, if you still get a piece of the cake, you're going to be in a pretty good mood. So, um, yes, you want to finish it off the right way. helps with recruiting, helps with momentum, all that kind of stuff. But me, down the line, I will not take anything away from what this team was able to accomplish. I think Mike McIntyre said at his press conference after the they announced the bowl game that this would be only be the fourth time in program history if they yeah. won 11 games. Third or fourth, I forget which. Yeah, I think this would be the fourth. Uh, 
that would be uh, something uh, to, to leave in terms of legacy. It's kind of crazy. We're going to get into our mailbag later. Got a lot of questions about next year. I feel almost yeah. like dirty talking about next year until this season ends because this is the last chance you're going to see Cheeto Bayouzi out there, Tedrick Thompson, mm. all these guys that have meant so much for this program and guys that will be revered for a very long time, forever, really, you know, because of how special this season was. Yeah, I wonder if it's just a defensive thing, but I feel like they don't get as much recognition as guys like Cepho or Nelson Spruce, uh, Paul Richardson, guys on offense who we've seen on much worse pro uh, teams throughout the years, kind of fan base, all have something to say about Nelson all the time. And I really honestly hope that the same can be said about Tedrick and Cheeto and Akella Witherspoon, Kenneth Bodie, Josh Tupo, all these other guys who have really accomplished something unbelievable on the defensive side of the ball and all will have a chance to, to get some NFL paychecks as well. Mike McIntyre named the Walter Camp Coach of the Year, the Home Depot Coach of the Year, of course the Pac-12 Coach of the Year. He's a finalist for both the Eddie Robinson Coach of the Year Award and the American Football Coaches Association National Coach of the Year Award. The AFCA already tabbed him the Region 5 Coach of the Year. First thought there, well-deserved. Second thought, why in the world are there so many That's Coach of the Year Awards? I was just going to say. Like I had no idea that there were like 17 Coach of the Year Awards. Uh, everybody's got to give away a trophy these days, man. So you won the Home Depot uh, Coach of the Award. Who's winning the lowest which coach, one, of the, coach, coach of the Year? Which one matters? I mean, I guess they all do, but like, which is the one that everyone always talks about? I don't even know. I've heard of the AFCA National Coach of the Year quite a bit. Ref- which one does the media vote on? I don't even know. Yeah, right? I mean, like, I don't know. It's cool, though. I think he's probably going to sweep all four of them, right? I mean, are you going to be the group of people that don't vote this guy? I <laughs> National no Coach of the Year? Um I don't think whoever, if they, if someone makes that choice, they're going to get crushed for it, I have a feeling. Um, the Eddie Robinson one, I'm not sure if that's, like, uh, if that one's more catered to, like, cultural differences and stuff like that. Like, if that typically goes to an African-American or black coach, I'm not sure. But I could see well, that Well, it would be case. weird if it was, because he's a finalist for it. It's, yeah, that's true. But, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, it, I you never know how these awards come up. Like, if it was something that they just felt like, or a Lifetime Achievement Award, Eddie Robinson, same thing. I'm not sure what the goal is there, but yes, he should win them all. It sounds like Mike McIntyre is going to have to find a room in his house for all these uh, Coach of the Year trophies. Definitely. Well, I mean, it's well-deserved, man. Unbelievable run. Clemson defensive coordinator Brent Venables, though, he selected as a winner of the Broyles Award over Jim Levitt and three other finalists on Tuesday. Did you have a big problem with this? Yeah, I do. Okay. I mean, Clemson has five stars all over the field. I mean, yes, it's part of recruiting, but this isn't a recruiting award. It's a coaching award. What Jim Levitt did with this defense in two years is far surpasses what Brent Venables did in Clemson. I mean, they're supposed to win every single game. They have one of the best offenses in the country as well. You know, they, they can give up 40 and it's not going to matter. This defense carried this team throughout the entire year. There's no way you can tell me that what Venables did was better than what Jim Levitt did this year. You had a pretty good speech at that. Did, did you watch that? I think it's on mm-hmm. YouTube. No, I mean, they have a personal relationship, so I know Jim Levitt was happy for him. He coached Brent Venables at Kansas State, I think, right? So I, I know Levitt's not salty about it, but I'll be salty for him. Well, yeah, you, you look at Football Scoop, they have their awards too. Uh, Lindgren and Chavarini are, are uh, together named as one of eight finalists for the Offense Coordinator of the Year Award. I believe Jim Levitt on Defense Coordinators nominated. Uh, Joe Tumpkin and Charles Clark are nominated for Defensive Backs Coach of the Year. And Sefa Lufau, named the Polynesian College Football Player of the Year. A formal presentation of the award will be held at the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame Celebration Dinner on January 20th. 
Kenneth Olobodi and Josh Tupo both set to participate in the East-West Shrine game. Olobodi named a second-team All-American by Pro Football Focus, which is interesting because Olobodi was not even first or second team All-Conference. Yeah, and Pro Football Focus had a Kelly Witherspoon as the number one rated corner in the country, didn't they? So how is he not first team? I mean, maybe that changed the last few weeks of the year, and I didn't know, but um, Olobodi's a stud. But he's in the right spot in the Shrine game. Or whatever, that's what we're calling it, right? The Shrine, East-West Shrine Bowl, right, Shrine yeah. game, yeah. Josh Tupo not going to the Senior Bowl pisses me off. I mean, that just seems unfair to me. You know, Oleg Bode is an undersized guy. Like, he's got work to do to make an NFL roster, and you understand that. Josh Tupo seems to have all the tools to me. I don't understand why he wouldn't get a shot at the Senior Bowl. They haven't announced the Senior Bowl teams yet, right? Yeah, but they only... Which is why why is the East-West Shrine game selecting guys? You should go from your most prestigious one. They take right. their pick of guys, and then you kind of see maybe, who's left. Maybe there's a list that they go through, and they tell people you're not getting... You know, like, they didn't make the cut. Okay. I'm not sure how that works, honestly, but you, that's the only reasonable explanation, I would think. But, yeah, I mean, I'll have to take a look at the defensive tackles that are going to the Senior Bowl, I guess. But it seems hard. You'd be hard to hard-pressed to convince me that he doesn't deserve to be there. I had a chance to catch up with Evan White, who is still set to return to the Buffs next month. He talked about how Jim Levitt's talking about him maybe factoring in a, in a nickel role, kind of uh, similar to Ryan Moeller, mm-hmm. potentially playing safety. Uh, it would be nice to get him back in the program. Definitely. And we talked about that on one of the previous podcasts, that if he does come back, we think he's kind of a perfect fit for that role. So it's good that the defense kind of feels the same way. Um, a guy that seemed like maybe he was slightly out of position at safety, just not quite fast enough when he was playing there in years past. Obviously, he's getting bigger and older, and you never know. He gets some athleticism back there as well. But, yeah, I think that outside linebacker hybrid role could be uh, perfect for him. And uh, obviously, worst case scenario, he'll be a really good special teams contributor yeah. for them. Yeah. Um, he's a father now. He definitely uh, wants to make the most of the second chance. Willie Taggart takes over in Eugene. I actually was kind of surprised at all the negative negativity. Um, I think maybe it, because it's Oregon and Phil Knight's got their back with his pocketbook that they expected some big name, but really... Aside from Herman taking over at Texas, is, was there really a big name out there to get? Yeah, there's nobody I really love. Honestly, that's available right now. I like it. He's a perfect fit for their offense. South Florida runs a very similar style to them. Their quarterback play is very similar to what Oregon likes to do, especially when they were really dominant with Mariota and uh, the other quarterback whose name is totally escaping minor. Would have won the Heisman but broke his leg. But, um, yeah, I really like the fit offensively. I think the negativity comes from the fact that their defense is trash. And South Florida's wasn't very good either. So he's going to have to really put together a good defensive staff to kind of turn that around, I think. People are going to say, oh, it's just more of the same. They're going to have the same issues. I like Taggart, though. Um, I think he deserves a job like this. Uh, I think it's a good fit. I think recruiting-wise, he's going to be able to speak to the players. We'll see, though. Uh, I mean, I've, I've said for a long time that Helfrich, I thought, was kind of hanging on to the job uh, based on reputation alone from Chip Kelly and that they have been recruiting as well the last few years. I like Helfrich as a person, but I think the job was too big for him. So I, I still I still like the move. I, I think that eventually they're going to be better off for it. As long as they have Phil Knight and Nike backing them, they're always going to have top-of-line facilities, and that's going to help. But we've seen other teams kind of catch up in terms of the the uniform trends. Uh, so that's not doesn't make them stand out quite as much. You have basically very little talent in your home state. That is not as easy a job as some people make it out to. I think the way Chip Kelly kind of 
built the program, it looked like that for a minute, but that's not a top 10 job in the country, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, it might have been for a little while, but for 90% of their existence, Oregon wasn't very good. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of those situations where they they're, they're, they kind of have an inflated self-awareness right now of this is what we are, and it's really more along the lines of, now this is what you've been for a small period of time, but by and large, you haven't been that successful for the longevity of your program. Washington Huskies headed to the Peach Bowl to take on Alabama. No one's giving Washington any chance here. We saw how dominant they can be against Colorado. Do you give them any chance? Yeah. Um, honestly, I felt, for a while there, I felt like they had a really good chance. Someone reminded me, though, that they struggled against the one team that was dominant up front in USC, which gives me major pause, um, I do have to say. But they're one of the most explosive offenses in the country. I think they can move the ball on Alabama if they are able to just be kind of a stalemate situation um, on the offensive line. Obviously, they're going to give up a few things here and there. But if they don't make mistakes like they did against Colorado, they're going to be in the game. I mean, Alabama, just like Washington, feasts on turnovers. If you don't turn the ball over, I think they'll have a chance. They have a ton of NFL players just like Alabama does. I think people are sleeping on how good Washington is. And I, I hate that the narrative is already going to be, oh, they didn't deserve to be there if they get smoked by Alabama. Like Penn State wasn't going to get smoked by Alabama. I mean, give me a break. Well, the Pac-12 championship game was good for recruiting in the sense that you won the Pac-12 South, but it put them a little bit behind. One less week to be on the road. They've been trying to make up for lost time this week with the dead period coming up uh, th this coming week. Mike McIntyre does his first in-home visit and I think he was smart by doing this with the quarterback, Tyler Lytle. Yeah, definitely. i got to keep him on board. I think they feel good about keeping him after some wishy-washy stuff with Indiana in the middle there. It seems like that he feels pretty comfortable coming to the bus right now, which is important. And uh, Mike McIntyre also stopped by Mississippi on Wednesday to meet with Holmes Community College defensive back Dante Wigley. He's the latest to join the bus commitment list. He can sign his letter of intent next Wednesday since he's a mid-year transfer. He'll be the... Uh, unless they get another mid-year guy that signs earlier than him on Wednesday. He'll be the first official buff in this class. He committed uh, after our last show last week. So uh, what, what were your thoughts on him? A, a long, rangy, versatile defense back. I think he's really underrated. Uh, love, love his fit for what we do defensively. Um, he's more ready to play right now than I think Akella Witherspoon was when he came in. And we've seen what Akella turned into. So if you get similar production out of Dante Wigley, um, I think he's going to challenge to start at one of the positions this next fall. Javier Edwards also met with the Buffs this week, uh, but after his trip to Arkansas, it seems like the Razorbacks might be uh, the, the favorite there. Obviously, he would be a huge addition in this class as a, as a very large nose tackle type that would come in as mid-year transfer, uh, so a little disappointing if for the Buffaloes if, if he doesn't sign with them. We'll find out, though. We're not going to have to wait again. That signing period for those guys is on Wednesday this week. Uh, so I would imagine he'll make his decision here in the coming days. Bubba Bolden, a safety prospect whose girlfriend attends CU, so Buffs fans kind of held out some hope there. He's narrowed the bus from consideration. He's down to USC and Ohio State. Even though th there was a girlfriend fa girlfriend factor in there, it never really seemed like he was coming to Bolden. Yeah, I mean, when you're going against those two programs, it's chances, especially when we, he's in Nevada. I mean, we haven't had a lot of success there historically uh, recruiting. But to stay involved with him is kind of a win in, in my own right. You, you're making progress there with those guys, which is big. But, I mean, it's there's no shame in losing to USC and Ohio State for a kid like that.
The last time I looked at it was Tuesday, and the Buffs were ranked number 17 nationally and number three in the Pac-12 by scouts in terms of the recruiting rankings. Uh, at this point, uh, let's touch on kind of the, the recruiting needs and what they need to do to kind of keep this as a top 25 class. Right. They definitely need a nose tackle. I mean, that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest concern for this defense next year's frontline help. Um, Wiggly, I honestly feel like our, I, I really feel good about our secondary next year. Obviously, it's not going to be as good as this year. That's you know written in stone pretty much. But I think we can survive there. I like our linebacker prospects. Um, but you got to take a few more defensive guys for the future, obviously. Um, but not, not expecting any of these guys to necessarily play minutes next year. Um, offensively, just keep getting talent. I mean, obviously, you'd like to see a tight end. But it's got to be someone who's going to change your offense. Not just going to take a guy to take a guy. Um, just fill it with the best possible prospects you can at this point. I mean, there aren't too many holes that we really are desperate for. You mentioned nose tackle. I think you need a Juco guy that's ready. I think you need a, a prep guy, someone like Damian Daniels that is pretty talented. Uh, you need still need a prep cornerback to come in there. They've got some uh, highly regarded guys looking at, at them there. You mentioned uh, tight end Josh Follow, of course, would be uh, make some send some shockwaves across the country. I mean, he's a kid that basically can go anywhere in the country. We know his family history and how that maybe gives Colorado a little bit of an edge there. Yeah, especially with the Oregon coaching change. Right. I mean, you, we'll see how he gets along with Taggart, but I mean, that at the very least has to give us a little bit of an advantage. We don't do this often. Make predictions with recruiting. I think Sam Barnes is going to commit to Colorado this weekend on his official visit. Right now, he's not rated on scout, but you look at some of the, the video footage of him out there at these camps, he is super raw because he doesn't have a lot of experience playing defensive back, but you just look at the raw materials there, the physical tools, his range, my jaw kind of hit the floor. I honestly bit. don't care where they tell him he's going to play because he's going to get on campus and he'll play football somewhere, um, whether it's special teams, whether it's Turner, whether it's secondary, whether it's wide receiver. The kid will play football at Colorado if he comes here. He's not rated because his grades are, are, are an issue right now. I mean, I think it's pretty much as simple as that. You can, I think if people were more comfortable with his grades, he would have a ton of offers. Got it all. And uh, it sounds like Colorado's put together an academic plan for him if he were to come to Buffs there. I think they're fairly confident. Obviously, they're bringing him out for a visit. They had an in-home with them that they can get that situation uh, figured out. His, I think his parents are both scientists. So you'd think you'd have the, the backing in your home, the support to get that done here down the stretch academically in the classroom. Texas and Tom Herman making a late run at Grant Pauley. Notre Dame after Chris Miller. Will Sherman visited Cal not too long ago. Of course, Tyler Lytle checked out Indiana uh, in the fall. Obviously proof that you have to keep recruiting these commits as hard as you did before they committed. All the yeah, way up definitely. until signing. That's why they go to all the commits first for in-home visits. Uh, especially when you got guys on this level, you're going to have big-time programs coming after him. Um, I don't even know if we have, do we have the Carson Wells highlight video on this list somewhere. No. Go ahead and talk Pretty about damn it. good for the lowest-ranked kid in the class, I would say. They had him inside in a lot of his film, which was surprising. People are talking about how his uh, highlight tape is sped up, um, which it does look like it is a little bit. But trust me, that man is fast. Well, he won the fastest man at yeah. the camp we were at. Uh, just edging out, Jonathan Van Deese was there. With him too, it wasn't like a blowaway victory for him, but uh, he's got some wheels for sure for a for a linebacker. 
want to kind of get your thoughts on Marcus McElroy and Christian Cumber. Of course, two guys that Colorado had offered when they were sophomores at Mullen High School. They had a committable offer from the bus for a year and a half before Colorado said, look, we got to move on to some other guys. Uh, they, they are talented guys, talented enough that Colorado wanted them for, for 15, 16, 17, 18 months. I forget exactly how long it was. It was about a year and a half. I think these are really good gets for CSU. I'm not trying to downplay that at all. Yeah. But, uh, of course, the, the Rams fan base is going to have the narrative that they beat out Colorado for these two kids. Yeah, I think for the most part they realize that we weren't recruiting them anymore. But it, they are great gets for CSU. There's no doubt about that. They, the, both these kids can really play. Colorado wanted them for a reason for a long time. But we saw kind of saw this coming. They've been slow playing the process for ever and ever and ever, kind of just fishing for bigger offers. And you ended up at CSU. I mean, you have no one else to blame but yourself, really. They'll talk about how it's always where they want it to be all along, but that's not true. I mean, I, th I think CSU is going to – they'll be great players there. Um, so from that perspective, it's going to work out great for them, but they definitely played the system the wrong way. Marcus McElroy reminds me a little bit of Michael Atkins as a player between the lines. I'm not trying to make any statements about his toughness and all that stuff. I don't. We don't know that. Um, but I think he's that type of athlete. I mean, you've seen it times when Michael Atkins has been healthy. He can be a pretty dynamic player. You picture that in the Mountain West program. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I think those both of those guys will start at CSU for multiple years. And Christian Cumber, I, I could see being a really good nickelback. Uh, he's He could be a cover corner, too. Uh, he hasn't been able to play a lot of corner at Mullen because he shuts guys down. Other teams don't throw to his side. So when he's at safety, it allows him to make more plays there. At least it did at the high school level. So... Again, I think he's going to be a good player for the Rams. It's enough probably talking about CSU commits, right? Yeah, I'm good. So 10 official visitors expected on campus for the Buffaloes this weekend. I had my uh, latest Buff Stampede Bits piece up earlier this week. Check that out for much more recruiting information. And, of course, uh, I'll be hitting the phones on Sunday tracking these guys down. Um, it's uh, it's a big weekend. Jake Moretti taking his official visit this weekend. Yeah, I mean, five commits. I honestly thought there was going to be more uncommitted kids coming. Maybe I'm There's only so many spots right left, and then yeah, January is going to be big for a lot of uh, some of the other guys that they're still in on. Yeah, if they're trying to save up spots, that's fine. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I guess I was expecting a little bit, a few more guys. But I think everybody that's coming in is someone that we want, so that's important. We'll see how it plays out. Uh, I think they really like Jalen Harris a lot, um, and yeah, you like you talk about Samuel Barnes. They're feeling pretty good about. Obviously, he's kind of more of an under the radar type guy, but physical attributes are off the charts there. You have questions and we have answers. Well, at least these guys think they do. It's time to dive into the Buff Stampede Radio Mailbag, which is presented by the Blake Street Tavern. Located one block north of Coors Field, the Blake Street Tavern has been Denver's premier sports bar since its opening in 2003. The Blake Street Tavern, where the game is always on, the drinks are always full, and the fun never stops. Dorn 04, or I think it's Dorn 09. I think I, that is. I think I messed that up. Yeah. Anyways, he wanted to know, Adam, who runs practices when the coaches are on the road recruiting? Well, they didn't have practices this week. The players got the week off. I mean, you've got plenty of time with those 10 to 15 bowl practices, however many mm -hmm. you're going you're gonna to do. Before the 29th, this gives the players time to maybe kind of refresh themselves mentally, physically, yeah. uh, gear up for finals, which are starting uh, on Sunday, I believe, up at CU. Um, so, yeah, I think that was kind of the plan all along. Um, There's some injuries, too. 
I mean, you got guys with bumps and bruises a week off does wonders in the middle of a football season, uh, for sure. And yeah, they'll get, they'll get they got plenty of time to get ready for Oklahoma State. I mean, they're still what's today the eighth. Yeah, I mean three three four weeks. Yeah, and the it works out well. They'll start their practices this weekend, kind of in conjunction with their official visitors being on campus, and then the recruiting dead period begins on Monday. So you're on stuck on campus at that point. Uh, for the remainder of December going into January. This dead period is a month long now, and it seems kind of ridiculous because prep prospects that go deep into the state playoffs with their team don't get a chance to take any official visits until January, and then they have basically three weekends before signing day. And at that point, you have colleges that are filling up, so you can get left out in the cold. So yeah. it's just they the NCAA need, needs to revamp this recruiting calendar badly. It's It's not... It's not fair to recruits that don't have a lot of money to take a lot of unofficial visits. Yeah, and you got to find a way to sneak a couple of these weekends in this five-week stretch here to make them available to guys to come in for sure. I mean, I get giving colleges a chance to get ready for their bowl game, giving the recruits a chance during the holidays to hang out at home, and then there's the coaches' convention. But, yeah, this this whole month-long dead period is too long. Taser 94 said, very sad about Rashawn. How do you think the coaches are addressing this with the team and recruits? Obviously, most of the team and all the recruits weren't born when when uh, Rashawn won the Heisman. Nevertheless, suicide is a very real issue with young people. Yeah, I mean, it's Rashawn has been around the program a little bit, but I don't think he's deep, was deeply connected with guys on the team. Um, so I think, it, if, if anything, it's more of a, like, kind of to his point, a, a chance to talk to people about suicide. More yeah. so than Rashan Salam as the individual. Yeah, I think both. I mean, not not necessarily the individual, but what he meant to the program and what you're playing for with this weighing heavily on the fan base and the program, too. Um, but, yeah, to just talk to the guys about, you know, if, if you know somebody who's having these issues or if you're having these issues, this is what happens if you try to suppress them and don't let anybody know. So, I mean, just kind of get it out there and, Make people aware um, what these kind of thoughts can do to you. I don't know what CU's going to do to kind of remember Rashawn Salam with this bowl game, but you know they're going to do something, whether it's a patch yeah. or some kind of memorial, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and whatever it is, uh, I can't wait to see it because he deserves it for sure. B. Wassman asked, do we know exactly what injury Cepho endured in the championship game? Will he be 100% for the bowl? Also, as someone who isn't 21 yet and has never been to San Antonio, what is something I should experience while down there? Cepho Lufau re-injured the right ankle that he uh, injured in the Michigan game. It was kind of weird, though, too, because like he was grabbing his knee a lot as he was like on the sideline trying to get back in the game. And, of course, he was stretching out his ankle. It, it was, we were all trying to figure out in the press box what exactly was the issue, but it turns out it's his ankle. And Mike McIntyre said that they expect him to practice on Friday, so I'd imagine that means that he's going to be just fine for the bowl game. Yeah, they'll get him ready. I mean, three weeks, you feel like he'll have plenty of time to get back. There's no games that he has to play in between there as well. So no rush. They'll, they'll take their time with him, and he knows what he's doing. You know, They don't need to have him practicing full go in every single practice to get him ready. In terms of not being 21 and what to do in San Antonio, I mean, the river walk is still fun to kind of mull around and obviously go out and eat dinner. Uh, there's a mall right there along the river walk. SeaWorld, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. There's SeaWorld out there. I don't know. 
yeah, man, don't ask me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the expert on the under, what you should do when you're with uh, the under 21 crowd. I don't know what I did when I was under 21. Go to movies and. Yeah, yeah. but do you want to go to San Antonio to go to the movies? <laughs> you could Probably do that not. here. <laughs> no, but the Riverwalk uh, is still fun. Yeah, man. yeah. I mean, you know, you'll have fun. You're, you're under 21. You have your, you have your ways to have fun. I'll just leave it at that. I trust you to figure it out. All right, Buff Predictor asked, who does Oklahoma State resemble the most from the Pac-12? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm going to say a, a better version of Cal. Nah, I don't think so. I would probably say... Oh, man. I would probably say Arizona State, but also, obviously, a much better version. But Arizona State couldn't pass the ball this year. And Oklahoma State's got a number nine ranked passing offense. Yeah, they do. I feel like they have a more multiple offense. I mean, they had quarterback issues at at Arizona State this year. I mean, maybe if you had Berkovici playing for this Arizona State team. Okay. But, yeah, there's clearly not a carbon example. Yeah, I don't think there's really a great team to put in there. All right, Smash Mouth Buff had this to say. With so many of the top defense alignment in the Pac-12 being Polynesian, does not having a single Polynesian assistant coach on the staff hurt CU's recruiting efforts on the D-line? In my opinion, replacing Jeff Coat with a Polynesian D-line coach would really help recruiting efforts uh, in the trenches. Your thoughts? First off, following this season, Jim Jeff Coat is not getting is not getting fired. Uh, I do think there is a point to be made there for getting a Polynesian coach yeah. on the staff in the NCAA. It sounds like they're going to prove uh, colleges, FBS programs having a 10th assistant. And a lot of programs are going to use that 10th assistant for recruiting purposes because you have a big recruiting department you know, from the op side. Those guys can't go out on the, co- uh, on the road to recruit, right? They sh- right. certainly do a lot behind the scenes and help out with kids on campus. But that 10th assistant could be very valuable, especially like this last week you're playing the Pac-12 championship game. You send him out on the road recruiting. I could totally see them maybe putting an emphasis on hiring a Polynesian guy for that role. Uh, you got Eric Anessi there already, um, who does a ton of recruiting. Yeah, but again, he can't go out on the road. Right, but if they allow you to get that 10th guy, I mean, he could he could be that guy. But I do agree 100% that there needs to be a Polynesian influence on this staff. It's one of the big um, gripes I've had with what McIntyre has done so far, um, especially being right next to Utah. Obviously, we were trying to recruit Hawaii still. Even California has a ton of poly kids. I think it would really help us, um, but yeah, I mean, whether whether it's somebody here or whether it's somebody that they they pick up, I, I do think that that would definitely be a recruiting advantage for us that we don't currently have. Mike Tuiasosopo had kind of mixed reviews when he was the D line coach for Colorado, but to Smash Mouth Buff's point here, he did recruit Josh Tupa and Samson Kafalalu to campus, so it would certainly be valuable. And Utah's right next door. Uh, there's certainly a mm-hmm. big Polynesian community there. So it, it would help. I, I do yeah. agree with that. Especially if, I mean, there's a chance that Utah could kind of be an average team for the next couple of years here, seeing how it plays out. You could take advantage of maybe their their uh, downgrade if we're able to play well the next few years. I think we could really start making a ton of moves in Utah. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of those guys are going to stay at BYU and Utah forever. But if you can get a couple, seems like all those families have BYU Utah connections, which is the tough yeah, thing. Yeah, right, exactly. So you, I mean, you you would have to get a couple a year, but I think that's possible, and I think it would help us a ton. Call me Coach B. Asked, 
Which of the underclassmen on each side of the ball stand to get the most benefit from an additional spring practice? Seems like an extra month of practice will really help guys like Tui Loma and Umu, who have plenty of athleticism and just need help refining their technique. And you can really go down the list. I think it's guys that are probably going to see maybe a little bit more of an increased role. Steven Montez, this is huge for him. Yeah, that was the number one guy for me. Nick Fisher was the second one that popped immediately into my head. Um, another one was Akil Jones, who I think is going to be asked to play a good amount of minutes next year at, at the linebacker position for the Buffs. Um, NJ Follow, a guy who's going to be in a, probably a much bigger role next year as well. Ronnie Blackman, Trey Udofia, yeah. uh, even Kyle Trago, Chris Bounds. Maybe Dylan Keeney, can he develop into something? I mean, he's certainly yeah, I mean, got a skill set. Yeah, I, th- I think that he's he's done well when he's come in there and, and blocked as well. I mean, I think I think he's going to have a role going forward. He's never going to be a guy who catches 30 balls. But, I mean, I think he can replace Sean Irwin um, next year. And I mean, we'll, we'll miss some things about Sean, but I, I think Dylan Keeney can go in there and do a good job as well. One guy that's rarely ever mentioned by CU fans that I think is going to be in the defensive line rotation next year is Brett Tons. He did a few nice things uh, during spring ball, and he, he was actually, I think he's like the third string nose tackle, but you know Jace Frankie's not going to be a starter. He's a pass rush specialist in that nose tackle role. Someone's going to have to man that role. If it's mm-hmm. not Javier Edwards, if it's not another guy you can find on the JUCO ranks, you're going to need a guy to step up there. I think Brett Tons could at least be give you 20, 25 snaps a game, so he's another guy. Yeah, I mean, spring ball is going to be important for us to kind of evaluate all these guys and see what they're going to do. They're definitely going to be smaller on the D-line unless they get a Juco guy in. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they scheme beyond that. I think they'll be a little bit bigger probably at linebacker, which will help some, especially with Derek McCartney coming back. But, uh, you know, we'll see. I think, I think we, this defense is going to look a lot different, obviously, next year. LJ Buff said, What's up, guys? Thanks for the podcast. They are excellent. What can you say about the right tackle position going into next fall? I felt like Cronsage gave us the best option there, but it sounds like Hagler may have a higher ceiling. The competition at all positions is going to be tremendous this spring. Any other position battles you're really looking forward to? Also, what are y'all's favorite Christmas movies? I love <laughs> the use of y'all's. We got a question. It might have been LJ Buff 04 a year ago that said something. He asked a question using y'all, and I've added that to my vernacular. I say y'all all the time. I have no idea why. Because it rolls off the tongue. Is, yeah, but I have forever. As long as I can remember, I've used it. Uh, the best Christmas movie is Jingle All the Way. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Is that the one <laughs> where? Uh, that's not the one where he can't find, can't get the toy for his kid, right? Is that the, that movie? Yeah, I think it is. And it's that like, movie? There's like the terrorist or whatever attack going in there as well. I remember, it's like such a weird movie. I, w- I remember going, I, I haven't seen that since it came out in the theaters, and I remember thinking it was going to be horrible, and I laughed through the whole oh, thing. Oh, it's hilarious. It's one of my favorite movies ever. But any Christmas movie is good. I mean, Christmas Story is classic. You've got to watch that every year at least once, I feel like. Um, Elf. Oh, yeah, Elf's great. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Elf is definitely up there. <laughs> Trying to think of what other Christmas movies there are out there. I would probably say Elf and Christmas Story. Jingle All the Way, I'm going to have to watch that again. It's I'll get movie. back to you on that. All right, do it. But in terms of uh, right tackle, so I actually looked this up. Hagler played hundred, or I'm sorry, 501 offensive snaps. Sam Cronsage played 474, so fairly comparable this year. Hagler gave up less sacks, pressures, 
It was not penalized one time this season, while Cron Sage was flagged four times. It's pretty amazing Hagler as an undersized right tackle didn't get ho- called for holding once this season. Yeah, you have to feel pretty good about Hagler starting next year. I mean, you get him in a weight, and he's going to be 300 pounds next year, and I think he has a chance to be an all-conference guy. The way that he played this year, undersized, literally no experience. I mean, did not play a ton of tackle in high school either. Uh, I think he has a chance to be really, really good. He's gotten better in a hurry. And with Jeremy Irwin coming back, it's a good problem that you have Sam Cronsage who's going to be a senior that is going to be a depth piece in there. Yeah, and I'm sure I'll have to play some snaps here here and there. I mean, Cronsage is a good player, too. I mean, you can't go wrong with either guy. I saw someone on the board ask if Cronsage could move into guard because they're obviously going to move Lenat into center. He doesn't have the frame to play yeah, he's guard. Not, not big enough. Well, he's not squatty enough too. He's too. Yeah. He's he's kind of a he's he's a tackle is what mm-hmm. he is. So that's not going to change. Uh, Trapped in Buckeye land had this to say. As mentioned above, would like to know if head coach Mike McIntyre anticipates any coaching changes, either by retirement, moving on, or being suggested to move on. I don't need names. And then uh, the real HR buff also wanted to know about possible staff changes that Mike McIntyre might make this year. Uh, After the season they just had, it's hard to envision their coaches getting pushed out. Um, Certainly, Gary Bernardi, if you're looking at the staff and saying, is there a coach that could potentially retire? Bernardi is the only one that seems close to retirement. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. Defensively, I mean, I feel like no one's talked about Charles Clark and Joe Tumkin, but a small school would be wise to try to get them a defensive coordinator position, in my opinion. I think that they could really do that. I don't know if it's going to happen for them this year, um, but when you have a season as good as this, teams tend to try to poach your guys. So it wouldn't surprise me if somebody took a better job, um, got, got a position upgrade somewhere, but I, there's no... I haven't heard any rumblings about it yet. I mean, to have this staff back back next year would be huge. And I didn't, don't. I'm not speculating there. I haven't heard anything about Bernardi. It just if you looked at the staff, that's the only mm-hmm. guy that seems close to retirement again. Um, Brian Linder, I guess, was a, a somewhat of a candidate for the San Jose State head coaching job. Didn't obviously get it. They hired somebody else. That's if anything. I think the changes are going to come if a. Jim Levitt gets a head coaching job somewhere else, and then you kind of shuffle the deck a little mm-hmm. bit there. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel like no matter who it is that takes off at this point, outside of maybe Cheverini, we have a guy that can come in and replace that role. And Cheverini is just so dynamic in the recruiting aspect of the thing. I think he, we would really miss him, but I love the lower-tier guys on our staff right now. I feel like all of them are doing a great job. And I would imagine most, if not all of them, are going to be in line for a, a little bit of a, a raise as well. Mm-hmm. Ralphie's Running asked if there was a postseason accolade on the Colorado football team for most swag, who would win? Got to be Cheeto, on right? The, on the field? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I, I don't feel but like just, Cheeto's not, not that like super outgoing as a guy. Okay. Um, on the field, it's probably Jimmy. He's the only one who has like something that he does every single week. Um, and he's always counting out his sacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you get up to three, that counts as a lot of swag. Once you have three in a game. Um, man, I don't know. Phil on the field, pretty swaggy as well. Yeah. Even though he's kind of a weird guy. You know who's going to um, grow up? Te- Tedrick, I think, is the one for me, though. Okay. Just like watching him play, you feel like he has the most confidence in himself. You know who's going to be the uh, answer here in a couple years? Tony Jewel Meese. Yeah, that's probably fair. The and Bryce Peters of the football program. <laughs> and for a white kid from Rifle, 
Ryan Mueller's got yeah, some swag Mueller to him. For sure. Yeah, he does. Definitely. Maybe a little bit too much at times. <laughs> Maybe. As we saw in the UCLA game. <laughs> what about Jawan Winfrey? He's got a little swag too. Yeah, for sure. He does. Um, a lot of the young guys do, honestly, man. Like some of the guys that you're not really seeing play on the field right now, like Johnny Huntley, same thing. All those, all those Florida plays. Um, a couple kids from Georgia. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely a lot more swag on this team than there have been in years past. Uh, they're a lot more fun to watch on social media, um, see them out and about. There's definitely a lot more likable personalities than there was the past few years. I like that question. I like these random questions we sometimes get in these mailbags. Mm-hmm. So keep the keep the random questions coming. <laughs> Oli Buff asked. What are your predictions for the starters on the defensive line next year just based on what you've seen and heard, separate from who we might recruit this cycle? Again, I feel dirty talking about next year already, but we'll, we'll answer his question. Yeah, well, if we're going 3-4, right? Right. That's, that's the assumption. I, you gotta, I'll probably, based on not having a guy in this class yet, probably have to say Lyle Tuiloma is your nose, Jace Frankie starting outside, Leo Jackson starting outside. Okay, I agree with you with Leo Jackson. I'm going to put Tim Coleman in there. And I don't think it's going to be Brett Tons as you're starting nose tackle. I think it's going to be a Juco guy, but I guess we're not allowed to do that <laughs> if yeah. we're answering his question the way he wanted it answered. But uh, that's the number one question mark from a personnel standpoint this oh, year. Oh, big time. And I think people were really concerned about our secondary, and I get it based on what we leave, but I really feel much more comfortable with the talent we have coming back there than I do about our D-line right now. 6635 Bam had this to say, no one really anticipated the flash that Fisher showed when he got the got on the field and when he was able to play extended snaps. Are we overly concerned with the D-line talent next year? Early indications were that people like the young talent we have there, it has just not been seen on the field. Is it not unreasonable to think the Fisher surprise could translate to guys like Tuiloma, Tons, etc.? I think this comparison is a bit of a stretch because I really liked what I saw from Nick Fisher in practice mm-hmm. before he ever got in the field. I thought he was going to be just fine when he got thrown out in that situation. I'm not quite as confident on those young D-line yet. And it yeah. could change this spring. Who knows? And you saw Fisher was already a contributor on special teams. Like, he was a guy who you knew could play some football. This D-line group is a little bit green. We don't know much about them yet. We'll have to see. I will say it does seem like upperclassmen D-line, somebody always steps up and plays better than you expect. Um, every single year it seems like somebody steps up into that mold. It'd be big for us if we had somebody do that again next year. I'll also say Derek McCartney coming back is going to help them a lot. Really good run uh, run defender. That obviously helps your D-line. Replacing Jimmy on the other side, you're going to probably actually get better run support, um, but you got to be able to get that pass rush. Um, we weren't a great pass rush team this year to begin with. Without him, it's going to be hard to see where that comes from next year. I think that's yeah. probably the biggest concern. It'll be interesting to see how Shamar Hamilton does when he gets on campus. He was a guy that was putting up big sack totals early on during his JUCO season before other teams figured out, okay, we got to double team and, and, and take this guy out of the equation. Yeah, he can potentially be there. But until they get on campus, you're kind of it's you're just guessing that. Yeah, and I feel like NJ was close on some plays this year. You could get him maybe 10 or 15 pounds heavier, be a little more physical, um, getting up to the passer. I think maybe he could kind of step up and be a guy who's not going to be as productive as Jimmy, but you know, fill a couple of those missing sacks with him next year. We'll see how it plays out. And on the topic of the D-line, your expectations for next year is to see 
a rot a true rotation with those guys. Mm-hmm. You're gonna see a lot of guys playing 20, 25 snaps a game versus this year when you had the benefit of having a Jordan Carroll, a Samson Kafavalu, and a Tupo that could carry the you know the bulk of the load. That's just simply not gonna be the case next year. Mm-hmm. Wheeler two asked, "What's the deal with Eddie Lopez? Did he medical last year?" And or redshirt this year, he's a big body. Any reason to be optimistic that he can help next year? Since his injury happened so early last season, he you can apply your actual regular redshirt if you still have it towards that. If it happens, I think in the what the first three games. Yeah. So he is going to be a redshirt ju- junior next year. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Uh, I don't, he honestly played as a true freshman. Had last year where he redshirted, so he's a redshirt sophomore this year. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I couldn't tell you what happened with Eddie Lopez. He's kind of the biggest mystery on the team. What's interesting is he doesn't seem unhappy. Like he seems to get along with Jeff Coat every time we see him at practice. Jeff Coat seems to like him, likes the kids on the team. There's not really an issue, I don't think, with him there. But he's got to step up because we need him, and he's got the body type to do so. Yeah, this is a great question for us to answer in a few months from now during spring ball. Ravens0811 asked, who starts at wide receiver next year and why? Well, they return everybody at receiver and they get Juwan Winfrey back. So the question is, is Juwan Winfrey healthy enough and does he prove that he's better than a Bryce Bobo or a yes. Shea Fields? Uh, uh, I mean, they, they, he was going to be our number one wide receiver before he got hurt this year. So if that answers your question, I think, I think you'll see that be the case this year. The term number one wide receiver to me is a little bit flawed, though, especially with how we run our offense. Um, I mean, Devin Ross has the most catches, but I think people would say Shea is our number one. And I think I don't think Shea would feel slighted by being the number two guy. I mean, they're both going to get a ton No, of I think Shea would be slighted if he was But it's, it's not how it's going to be labeled. You know what I mean? Like, they're going to play the same position probably. So I, I, think, I think Bryce is probably the odd man out, most likely, in that scenario. But you, you got, got you got to factor in that Juwan's coming back from an ACL. Yeah, if if he's healthy, is what I'm saying. If he comes back the same, I think that's how it plays out. But Bryce is a baller too. They're going to get all four of those dudes on the field. Best case scenario, you just rotate a little bit more receiver. Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario, somebody gets hurt and you, you at least have some depth. Shape. Right? Yeah. yeah. Reed J had this to say: Can you and Tyler quickly do? Your way too early unofficial 2017 season record predictions would be interested in your initial thoughts even with many unknowns and a long ways to go in order to make a better guess. So you don't feel lonely. I am going 8-4. and four. Weak non-conference. A lot of talent returning on offense. A lot of turnover on defense, particularly obviously on the D-line. 8-4 and four sounds about... As good as any guess to me right yeah, now. Yeah, that's seven, five, eight, and four somewhere in there is what you look at right away. Um, eight and four was going to be my answer as well. There's no excuse to not go bowling. Next They're year. absolutely uh, going to a bowl game. Yeah, next year. I'll, I'll say that for sure. You have to go three and six in conference in a division with a couple bad teams right now. There's there's no way you're not going at least six and six, um, and that's obviously a good place to be. And I'll take back to back bowls. Colorado Rules wanted to know when the eligibility chart will be updated. I do an update after the season, which, of course, this year is delayed a little bit because of the bowl game from previous years. So I'll do that, I don't know, New Year's Day probably. And then I do a post-signing day update as well. So there will be a couple updates in there. 
We are now going to start to kind of transition into a little bit more of men's basketball talk. And here's a, a good transition here from Louisville Buff. He said, both the Buffs football and men's basketball teams are loaded with seniors and upperclassmen. Yet you couldn't have a bigger difference in terms of senior leadership on the two teams. Football loaded with leaders that make everyone accountable. Like he used the example of uh, the seniors making the freshmen do extra workouts at 5.30 a.m. because the freshmen were skipping classes and study sessions. While the men's basketball seniors don't seem to hold anyone accountable, including themselves. What accounts for the difference? Coaching, natural born leaders, the players themselves, the hard times the football players suffered through and emerged stronger, etc. Give us your thoughts. Poor timing. <laughs> Coming the day after the Xavier game. Oh, uh, you're right though. Um, the basketball team should be farther along than they are right now. Um, and we've seen what they can do, obviously, with last night's game, even though I don't think they played perfect, which is a good sign. I mean, if they play their best basketball, they have a chance to be really good. But we shouldn't have these questions about this basketball team with four fifth-year seniors and one fourth-year junior. We definitely should not. The football team, though, I mean, it's a tough comparison because it took them a long time to get to this point. A lot of things had to go right. I mean, you don't see this kind of type of turnaround every single year, so it's hard to point out exactly what causes something like this to happen. Uh, there's definitely accountability, though, and that's the main thing. And the football team has more dudes, I guess I would say. Guys you know are going to take control of the huddle. Basketball team, you still don't have that. Yeah, he mentioned natural-born leaders. I do think that is part of it because you just his experience as Wesley Gordon is, for example, he's just not going to be a leader. It's just not in his DNA. And I kind of uh, piggybacking on what Tad Boyle said after the Xavier game, you got to give Xavier Johnson a lot of credit for maturing and becoming mm-hmm. somewhat of a leader. Um, after the CSU game in the post-game press conference, he looks down at the stat sheet, sees George King didn't have any rebounds, and says, that's just stupid, walks out of the press conference. So there's some accountability from from him, from XJ that, that he's starting to kind of take ownership of this team, it seems. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean... I, I didn't see that press conference actually, but he played really tentative in that game as well. I mean, wasn't setting his feet on shots. Didn't look like he wanted to take the take shots out. Um, the way that he played against the Xavier game and, and in most of the games the rest of the year, that's what he needs to do every single night. Be aggressive. He's playing with energy. He's playing with passion, but he's not being overly passionate. He's not hurting the team. George King just has to be aggressive. Derek White has to be aggressive. You watch how that team played last night. There's no excuse, especially for King and for, and uh, Derek White. You have to play like that every game. You know, sometimes it's not going to work out. And you're going to shoot the ball poorly and you're going to lose. But you are the two dudes on this team that can take over basketball games and bring them to a lot of wins. You have to play like that every night. It's the one thing that can't change about your about your game every single night is you have to have effort. You have to be aggressive. The culture in basketball can sometimes be different too from football. Uh, AAU circuit, sometimes you get caught a little bit more as a basketball. You see, not to say there aren't a lot of prima donna types in football, there certainly are, but it seems more normal in, in terms of a basketball program from, from the culture that's created from yeah. when they're young. They, basketball is a stranger game, too, and that sometimes you just make shots or you don't. And like in football, more you know, it's a physical game. More often than not, the team that's more physical wins. Um, team that has more talent wins. And in basketball, sometimes you're a good shooter and it just doesn't go in. Like, that's not really how football is played, you know? Like, sometimes the ball just doesn't go in the basket in a basketball game. So it's 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 hard to really talk about matchups sometimes in basketball because it really just depends on how a team plays more often than not. 
It was a good question, though, because certainly Tad Boyle's been really frustrated oh, with sure. this, for sure. Buckin' Fuffalo, one of the better usernames on the board, had this to say. When a couple of pure shooters benefit Tad's team, he seems to recruit for length and athleticism. Schools like UNO, Fort Lewis, Seattle, the lower-tier program seem littered with pure shooters. I get there usually slower and less athletic, but on nights where defense alone can't win a game, some instant offense might be valuable. Almost sounds like he's like, I think of Brett Brady when I think of this question, which he couldn't, yeah. you know, get on the court for meaningful minutes for the buffs. I mean, the thing is, you're only a pure shooter if you're open. <laughs> like, you, you can't bring those guys up to this level. They're not, they're easy to guard. They're not athletic. They're not getting open on their own. People, people think like, oh, he can make a shot anywhere on the court. It's like, yeah, but if you're guarded from 30 feet and you don't have any way to get open, it doesn't do a whole lot for you. Honestly, I think there are quite a few pure shooters on this team. A lot of them just aren't shooting the bar very well. Dom Collier's hurt. Josh Fortune can't make anything. Um, George King is getting a little bit better the last few games. He's putting the ball in the hoop a little bit more. But, I mean, at some point... Lucas Seward can stroke the ball if he's... Watch him practice. The guy can shoot it. He has no confidence right now, though. It's kind of... You've mentioned this before. It's kind of that same Dustin Thomas situation. (laughs) I hope that doesn't turn out to be the case because he really can play. Um, We need him to play, and he needs to shoot the ball when he's out there because that's how he helps his team. I mean, obviously, he's got a lot of work to do defensively, and he's getting used to how, how to play at this level. you got to make shots if you're on the court. That's that's your advantage. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think this team is a better shooting team than they've shown thus far. But, uh, you know, eventually you got to make the shots to prove that, I suppose. Of course, what you want to get is a, a, a scorer that's athletic and – you know, like a D- Deshaun Schwartz could potentially be that a guy that, that's going to join the program next year. So, uh, yeah, you, you don't want to give up too much in those other areas. Uh, that's not a good recruiting strategy if you're a Pac-12 head coach. Yeah, I mean, you t- people talk about the pure shooters at the D1 level, too, and they talk about them like they are non-athletes. I mean, J.P. McCurry is a perfect example. Guy played for Xavier last night. Didn't do a whole lot in that game. The kid can absolutely stroke it, but not only can he stroke it, he's six foot six and he'll dunk on you. I mean, you, it, there's it's just a different level of athlete. You can't be just a guy who goes out there and shoots. When people are like, oh, J.J. Redick. It's like, J.J. Redick is one of the quickest dudes you'll ever watch play, and he would dunk on you as well if he needed to. It's not He's not he's not a D2 athlete. That's, that's, there's, there's a difference. Ralphie's running with our last question here for the mailbag. He said, the CU men's basketball team's performance so far seemed to be contingent on their ability to shoot the outside shot. Do you see it this way? How concerned should we be at the lack of a post game so far from Torrey Miller and Wesley Gordon? Very concerned about the last part. They've both played terrible so far this year. There's really no other way to put it. Um, you saw why Torrey plays last night, because he really has to for this team to be effective in the post. Um, but he has not played well while he's been in there. Wesley Gordon has not played well either. Uh, both offensively and defensively for both of these guys, there have been struggles. Um, so it, it is a big deal, and yes, obviously, shooting from the outside helps this team because for the most part, you know that we're going to defend fairly well. Um, so if we make outside shots, we'll have a pretty good chance to win. Um, but it's really not so much outside shots as it is getting quality looks, attacking the rim, finding others. That is what West last night had five assists and had actually quite a few very nice passes out of the post to wide-open guys. So from that perspective, that was huge. Um, but Derek White getting into the lane, creating, finishing shots, taking game over himself, making big threes. That's that's where you, it's not just always making threes. You got to take quality looks. More more often than not, 
threes go in when you take good shots. Yeah, all valid concerns, and you have to temper your expectations somewhat for this basketball team. Yet, you look at it, they're 7-2, and two, two wins over ranked teams, and really only three of the ten healthy players in the rotation, not including Dom Collier, who really hasn't played this year, only three of ten rotation players are playing as good as I expected them coming into yeah. the season. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the good news for this team is I feel like we're playing pretty awful overall um, through nine games this year, and we have the record that I expected. So if they ever turn it on, plus the Pac-12 is garbage this year, let's be honest. I mean, we have five brutal first games. I mean, we play at, uh, at Utah, at Arizona State, at Arizona. Then we have home USC, home UCLA. Five horrific games to start conference late. If you go two and three in that slate, we're going to finish the year at least 11 and seven. The remaining schedule is super easy. So you get through that stretch, we'll be fine. Xavier might not be as good as people expected in the preseason, yeah. but that was still a really talented team that you beat. Uh, and there's a lot to be encouraged by by that performance. Definitely, yeah. I mean, they, they have not been as good as I expected them to be this year. This is the fourth game I've watched them play extensively. They have disappointed me in all four of their games, um, which sucks for our resume. I would like for them to turn it around and be very good the rest of the way. I honestly don't think they're a top 25 team right now. Same as I said about Texas when we beat them, so that's unfortunate. Um, so we'll see how those wins end up being for us. You have to root for them all to play well, obviously. But yeah, Xavier, just I don't I don't know. It's hard to really like pinpoint what they're doing wrong. I don't like their bigs, even though they dominated ours, which isn't a great sign. Blewett had a great game last night, but still, I mean, he's not. He took thirteen threes. He's not a great third, uh, three point shooter, honestly. Like if that's the only way he's going to get buckets, they're going to be in trouble. I, I really thought they were going to try to attack, attack the paint on us relentlessly. They did none of that last night. Played right into our hands. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Xavier, I feel like, is a little bit lost right now. D- does this offset the CSU loss in no. your mind? No. No. But if um, they went out the rest of... Uh, nine yeah, games? I mean, if they beat BYU, then yes. The, the entire four-game stretch. I mean, going going 3-1 and one against CSU at... Port, or 4-1? At uh, CSU, Portland, Xavier, and then at BYU... Um, yeah, going 3-1 and one in that stretch is pretty good. I mean, obviously you don't want to lose to CSU because we have to hear about it all year. But over, by and large, you've, you've done what you needed to do there for the most part, um, assuming you can obviously take care of Air Force and Eastern Washington on the road. If we finish the non-conference slate with two losses, we're in great shape. Um, but losing to CSU at home is going to end up being a bad – you're going to see that as a bad loss in our resume in March. You never want to do that, especially for a home game. They still have Air Force, Eastern Washington, and Fort Hayes State left in non-conference. Right. Certainly, you mark those down as wins, but there is a concern with this basketball team and Tad Boyle voiced after the Xavier game. Is this is the type of team, at least from the makeup they've shown so far, that will get up for those big games but might not for some of those smaller games, which concerns you a little bit? Yeah, I mean, we're not going to lose to Fort Hayes State. <laughs> I feel pretty good about that one. Um, but the Air Force game, honestly, is going to be super important for us because it's a way to steal another road game, um, which in the non-conference portion of your schedule is always big, no matter the opponent, true road game. It's not really a true road game, though. There's going to be a ton of bus fans there. So it's a game that you have to get up for and win because I think come March, that's going to be, there's one more tick on the road, the road measuring stick that people want to see. What uh, do you think the line is going to be for BYU game on Saturday night? Uh, we'll probably be four-point underdogs. Somewhere in there, probably. 
And that's a, that's a tough place to play. Oh, yeah. They got 20,000 people in that building every single night. And BYU can score. So we better be ready to put the ball through the hoop. What else should we talk about with this men's basketball program? Uh, I mean, they just need to find some consistency. And we, I talked about Derek and George. If they're going to be consistent, they have to be that aggressive every night. Now, obviously, they'll have off nights. Obviously, it's not always going to work, and somebody else is going to have to step up. But they're the playmakers on this team. They're the team. They're the guys that can take over ball games. They have to do that every night. Yeah. I think Derek was trying to feel out, can I be the leader? Can I be the guy on this team coming in as a one-year guy? He no longer has a choice. He's the best player on the team. Best two-way player. He's been great defensively, which I was worried about going in. He's been fantastic defensively. Huge block list last night late on the stretch in that Xavier game. It's, it's his team now. He's got he's to play like it every week. Derek White, Xavier Johnson playing consistent basketball. Who's the, the X-factor player for this team going forward this season? Um, everyone's going to hate me, but I think it's Josh Fortune. He's, he's good defensively. I mean, I understand watching him offensively is incredibly frustrating right now. If he can get it going and become a guy who scores 8 to 10 points a game every single night for you, not total, where he scores 15 and then 3, where he can be a consistent guy and hits a couple jumpers, takes good shots, doesn't turn the ball over, this team will be pretty good. Because he's on the court because he's knocking guys down. Um, but he's a, a, a guy that on, offensively right now is killing us, and that can't happen. Obviously, Dom Collier could be a, an X-factor down yeah. the road. I, I would think at this point, Derek White's established himself as the primary ball handler and that uh-huh. Dom will play off ball when he gets back. Which is fine. He's a great shooter, man. I think if he if he locks himself into that role, that'd be nice. All right. Well, we covered a lot on this show. We've talked long enough. We'll be back with another podcast, obviously, before the Alamo Bowl. Thanks for tuning in.